Hey, this is Matt Dwyer, and I just want to invite you to check out themattdwyer.com. That's my website, where it's a landing spot for all things that are the podcast, like my Patreon page. For $5 a month, you could become a Patreon subscriber. You get bonus blogs, bonus content. A lot of my interviews go two hours, but I only post an hour. So there's the part two there. There's episodes in their entirety that unedited a lot of stories that you might not hear in the podcast. So go to themattdwire.com, become a Patreon subscriber. There's also merchandise. You can buy t-shirts and a phone case. I think those are the only two things I have right now. But you can also find my social media and see the past episodes. Every episode is on there. Um, you can see all, a lot of my past guests. You might discover some people you didn't know were on the show and be like, holy shit, he's had Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips or holy shit, he's had Danita Sparks from L7. So go to themattdwire.com, become a Patreon subscriber, buy some merch. Thank you. with Dwyer, or you can just call it Dwyer, because everyone calls me Dwyer. Um, but either way, this is a music podcast. Welcome. And uh, speaking of music, if you like that song that played me in, it is called X Out. It is from the album Present Tense, and it is from the band Facts. And speaking of Facts, the, the, the guy from Facts, Brian Case, is my guest today. He's also... Uh, in a bunch of other bands, he created Disappears which and 90 Day Men. He was in The Ponies. He's uh, done a lot of music, and I'm a big fan. I was a fan of 90 Day Men when they came out, and then, then Disappears. Do you need the chronology of my uh, becoming a fan of his music? Anyway, this is a great conversation. Another Chicagoan. As you know, I love my Chicago bands. Uh, all things... Facts disappears. Ninety Day Men are in the show notes. You can go to the band camps, their social media. Please buy music. Also, I let that play song play a little bit longer than I usually do because I fucking love it so goddamn much. It's a great song. It's a great album. Go to Bandcamp, purchase some of their stuff, support music. Brian's a great guy. This is a really great conversation. And speaking of Chicago artists. Nadia Garofalo, who is from the band Ganser, who's been a guest on the podcast. I will call her a friend or a super friendly acquaintance because I guess technically we've never met, but we've Zoomed. We've Zoomed. That's like being friends these days. Anyway, she has a book of poetry coming out, and that was one of the things her and I talked about a lot on her episode is poetry in general and its influence on culture, and she is a poet and a goddamn good one. And her book coming out is called uh, Relative Trauma. There's a link to buy that in the show notes as well. I've read a good portion of it, and it's great. And then I got depressed about other life stuff. It had nothing to do with the poems. Actually, the poems helped me feel better. But I had some career shit take a shit. But that's life. Anyway, so, please, show notes. Oh, also in the show notes is a link to... Um, Kelly R. DeWire's website, who is my partner, and she makes websites. So if you need a website, you might want to consider her. She does uh, my website, themattdwire.com. She does My Favorite Murder. She does Ologies. She does a bunch of websites, politicians, actors, artists, businesses. She does it all. You can go to kellyrdewire.com, look at her work. She's also a great photographer, just a side note. So show notes, always important to go to my show notes and purchase things. And you can go to themattdwire.com. You could become a Patreon subscriber, as I talked about at the top. I've already plugged my website. But you know what would be really cool that helps me? If you just tell your friends about the podcast. You could rate and review it, but I'd rather you just tell people, like, hey, I've been listening to this podcast. And, you know, go to my website and check out past guests, because I've, I've had a lot of great guests, and it just the list keeps growing of people I'm really thrilled that I talk to. So, all right, that being said, we're going to get on to my conversation with Brian Case of Facts, Disappears, 90 Day Men, and The Ponies. Yeah. 
I saw that skateboarding was an influence on your like, right? I love it. Yeah. Is are you from the Midwest or Chicago? Because I don't. Maybe it's I'm a, from St. Louis. Ah. Is, so I moved here in when I was eighteen, and that was in uh, '95. So oh, wow. I kind of learned all about like punk and alternative culture from uh, Thrasher magazine because I w- would see it at the grocery store and I'd never seen anything like that. So the skateboarding was becoming really popular in the eighties. I started buying that and learning about this whole subculture that I didn't realize was even happening in the place where I lived or that there was music that wasn't on the radio that you could buy other places, you know, like I just didn't know anything about that. So, Oh, that's wild. Cause yeah. I, like it, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago and I don't know, skateboarding just like I had one, but it like wasn't as big as a, a cultural thing. Yeah. As it, was. it was like, for me, that's where I learned just about things outside of the mainstream and like about, you know, this music I'd part kind of been exposed to, but I guess not really until later, but and I met up with all these weirdos who lived around me who were skating and we would all get together and yeah, kind of really like very influential on me more as like a exposure to something else than I was never like a very good skater. Like I, I still like to do it. I still try to, uh, but my body is too now. So. <laughs> yeah, that might have been why I didn't do it. I just wasn't coordinated. Like I, yeah. I think I could do one trick, and I was impressed. And then I was like, "All right, I'm done." Because I, yeah, if I fall now, it's that's that's a that just won't heal. You know, like yeah, so I, have to, I have to be uh, careful. <laughs> so, so before you discovered Thrasher, would would you say you were like sort of searching? searching for some kind of because i know what it's like in i don't know when you're that age you're just like if you don't quite fit in you're kind of like trying to find that thing which i definitely i think i took that like natural progression from like i'd always been obsessed with music so i was always listening to music i always wanted to find new music you know or just new to me not necessarily like current and then i was you know super into comic books and so like i feel like I kind of naturally gravitated towards like something outside of the normal trajectory for most kids. Yeah. I find, do you think that's kind of a rare quality? Somebody who's always, cause I'm the same way where I'm, I want to find something I haven't heard before, be it fucking a hundred years old or something new. Yeah. Don't think, but maybe I'm crazy, but I, I feel like the regular Joe doesn't have that much i don't think so even like friends of mine who have dedicated their lives to music aren't always as interested in you know something new and i feel like like well why are you doing this if you're not not trying to like expand your brain but i get it like it's there's so many different ways to come at this but uh for me like something that always inspires and motivates me is unheard music or you know the fact that there's something out there that could change my perspective or you know just i don't know play me something that i'll hate and then i won't i won't be able to stop thinking about it you know what i mean like i get as obsessed with things that i think are total trash than as i do with things that i love you know like trying to understand what the appeal is or what the intent is you know yeah that's do you feel like that sort of approach, like to trying to understand something that you don't like is something you developed later in life or was that something that you started doing early on? I think probably in the middle, like once I became like a sort of music snobby, like teenager, just trying to understand why people would be like, I had this job where I was, I would deliver the wall street journal. So I would, drive around in my car. I would start at like one in the morning. I just drive around throw papers out the window all night. And I couldn't listen to like tapes because they, there was too much downtime and too much. It was like considered like a whole thing, but the radio would just blast like music and commercials. And it kept me like awake and moving. So during like the nineties, when I was, you know, 
probably insufferable to be around <laughs> like, in terms of my musical taste and what I thought was good and bad. I, I loved listening to the radio and hearing all that like 90s alternative, like rock, like post Nirvana, whatever. Just like, I loved it. Like Sponge or Cell or, you know, whatever, like, like one hit 90s wonders. Like I was so drawn to that, even though it was the antithesis of what I like wanted to make or thought was valid or cool. And I don't know, that's, I love that, like, kind of juxtaposition of like, why is this, why do I love this? Even though like, I hate everything that it kind of like comes from and stands for like, so I don't know. I kind of always like, uh, riding that line, you know, or like investigating that line, I should say. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I feel like I hit a point where I was, I don't know. I, f- I felt myself getting stuck, like intellectually, not just with music, but like, and that was, and I stopped listening to new music and I was like, whoa, like you gotta really stop. Just keep curious. Cause that's, I think how you right. keep your brain from turning to mush. Yeah. And it's, I just, it's fascinating to me to people who don't, don't stop themselves or who never take that curiosity. It's just yeah. baffling to me. Do you think yeah. that bad music, or that's a terrible way of putting it. <laughs> do you think that has influenced you at all and what you do? Yeah, probably. I mean, it definitely made me want to find something different. You know, <laughs> like, like in the regards that, uh, yeah, that it wasn't, you know, you find some things you like and then you, you're searching for more and you can't find it. For me, I just kept looking, you know, like I would really like to like, you know, when I first heard Led Zeppelin, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then, you know, the next thing I found that resonated with me like that was like uh, Guns N' Roses or something. And then Metallica. And then there was this gulf where I had to like dig around for a while and find some stuff. And when I was starting to play guitar, I was buying like guitar player magazines to like try to find out what music was, what it was. And I was coming up to like Joe Satriani and know stuff like that that just wasn't appealing to me but that I was trying to like learn more about because it was uh what I had access to and then I found like Thrasher and started to hear about just like you know like punk music and underground scenes and I think the real turning point I can remember outside of like reading Thrasher was uh seventh grade a friend of mine made me a mixtape and on or a tape and on one side was Ozzy Osbourne and on the other side was uh, Sex Pistols and wow yeah once I heard the Sex Pistols I was like okay this is much more like it just sounded different that's kind of what I responded to like the music wasn't as groundbreaking as like just the sounds that were like it was so much nastier and like definitely considered like a not proper recording compared to like a lot of the stuff I've been hearing. So, uh, it was cool. And then I kind of just went with that. It's kind of symbolic that Ozzy's on one side and sex, because that like also would sort of sum up my, it's like you're on that trajectory of that sort of metal sort of thing. And then like, same thing, a friend of mine made me a tape and it was a punk mixtape. And it just like, I was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> it was yeah. Like yeah. I was speechless and terrified, but thrilled. Yeah. And they're both, it's funny because like looking back at it now, it's like, they're both so similar. Like it's all about shocking and like being, you know, just like, yeah. Kind of just about like pushing some boundaries, but from two totally different perspectives. Yeah. And that's uh, how one resonated more with me. than Yeah. I too, I felt like though I discovered like, punk like that kind of punk in high school it still didn't seem like i liked it it was different but i felt like there still was something else out there that and i felt like guns and roses yeah. sort of like like you said like i was like okay we're getting there we're getting yeah. closer <laughs> yeah it wasn't until like i kind of found like fugazi and sonic youth that i really like 
felt like I had found my tribe or whatever. Yeah. And I I had some friends and we all kind of knew one thing. Actually, it's funny. I have another middle school memory. It was my friend Chris coming over to, uh, it was like the last day of school and we were actually going to see Rush in concert. This was also like seventh grade. And um, he brought over Misfits, Walk Among Us, and Fugazi, 13 songs. And that was, like, a huge day. Like, we were listening to those before the concert, and we went to the concert, and we were like, I don't know if I like Rush anymore. <laughs> 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 I don't want to listen to that. Listen to this other stuff. And, uh, yeah, then I went out, and I bought, like, Steady Dying and Nothing, and then I was just, like, obsessed from there on out. That was the full shit. That was like, put these CDs away and like replace them with these CDs. And, you know, that was when like first, while well, Palooza well, was happening. So like that stuff was all like becoming accessible. Like you didn't have to search for it as much. And, uh, you know, then Nirvana happened and all that shit was. Yeah. I was wondering when you were talking about like underground, because like when I was young, you would hear about these underground scenes and it left so much more to the imagination because you just had zines or magazines. You didn't yeah. have, like I have, I've talked to people who were like, I heard about the Ramones. I didn't even know what they looked like. Just by the concept alone, I knew it was something I would be attracted to. And you don't, I don't know if you have that anymore. I mean, I'm sure there's something else that'll be magical or whatever for the younger generation, but yeah. I don't know. It's just really fascinating to me because it left so much to your imagination. Yeah, there's you had to search for it and find it. That's how partially, like I think, I developed the friend group that I did because everyone was, you know, asking each other questions and trying to find out more and like going to every show because you you couldn't miss anything because there was no way it was going to happen. You know, and nowadays I don't think that urgency is there. Yeah. Do you remember what Rush tour that was? Roughly. Roll the bones. What? Roll the bones. <laughs> oh, wow. Because I saw him around moving pictures and I was like 13, stoned out of my fucking mind. And I was bored. And I, that was a bad sign where I was like, I'm high and this is terrible. <laughs> yeah. This was the Rush album where they actually rapped on it. And, uh, that was. That was a good place to do. That was a good uh, justification for why it's time to move on to <laughs> something a little different. <laughs> I have like oodles of respect for them. Like I think, and I think they're just their own dudes, and they do their own thing. Or two yeah, they're awesome. They're great, but but yeah, it's they're real nerds and embrace it which i love like i love that the like they would tour with kiss and be like kiss was fucking everything that moved and like we're gonna go read john paul sartre now (laughs) they're great i love them i I do love them but at some point they're like it was time to (laughs) it's just funny because a lot of the dudes like my brothers and all they're still like stuck they're just they're they're there it's yeah. Rush. It's Fog Hat. <laughs> so yeah. I mean that that world like like Foreigner, like Sticks, like that is always something like shit. And that's I'm never gonna understand that. But whatever. Like I would also never shame you for liking whatever you like. Like like what you like. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. Was there a music scene happening in St. Louis as, at the time, or was? There was, and I was, like, just a little, like, so me and my friends were just a few years younger than uh, the scene that was kind of going that was, like, there was a band called, like, Ultraman. Oh, yeah. That they were kind of, like, the, I feel like the, the band that was bringing other bands to town. And I was too young for that. But, like, there was, like, when Fugazi would come to town, like, uh, the singer for Ultraman would book it. And uh, so there was some stuff happening with that, and that sort of trickled down into my age group. There was a club. We grew up out just like 20 minutes outside of St. Louis. There was a club called Bastille's. It was like an all-ages club that actually got like lots of Discord bands played there. Like the first Rancid tour went there. Like you know, in the suburbs, there's absolutely nothing to do for kids. 
So when this club opened, it was somewhat like centrally located and the shows were huge. Like even our high school bands would play to like 200 people. Like it was ridiculous. Like, you know, and then out of that, they formed the scene, which was like uh, this band called Caffeine and this band called Meat Sisters and this band called Sea Heads. And then our, like the bands I was in started playing. And there was this great scene and then that club closed. So for a while it was a little touch and go and then everyone had to, then it just started being house shows and that was huge. Like, it was awesome. It was a really supportive scene. It was, there was never like a lot of drinking or anything like that. It was always kind of just about people going to see music and anything that happened outside of that happened outside of that space because everyone was so concerned with keeping those things going. So it was cool. Did that, when you started hearing that kind of music, is that was that the point where you were like, "I want to play," or was there always that, or was there always an interest to play? I would. I had already. I mean, I had probably. I've been in a band since I was thirteen, and that started with you know finding the other people that were my age that played drums and bass and like Guns N' Roses and Metallica or whatever, and we would play in the garage, and it was super fun. And that just evolved into everyone's tastes changing and starting these different kinds of bands. So I had already been playing and I played with one person from the first group I'd been in for a couple of years. And then that, that group split into two groups and we all stayed friends and played shows together. And yeah, just and then somehow we started meeting other people our age who were playing. I mean, at that time, like playing guitar was very common. So lots of people were like playing music and starting bands and, I mean, honestly, there was nothing else to do. We would, <laughs> we would play music and, like, go to Denny's. And, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm laughing because I, I relate. I wasn't in, yeah. I didn't play music. I mean, I tried and I quickly was like, not me. Right, right. I'll just be the fan. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, you know, sub- suburbs of Chicago, it's the same thing. It's just fucking. Yeah, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it's the same in all the suburbs. It's like, you, have, you sort of have access to the city, but don't know it. You don't know what to do, and then it takes a few friends to get you down there. In the meantime, you kind of start your own thing. So, if you're motivated, I don't know. We were motivated to do that. So. <laughs> what was the? Because you moved to Chicago at 18, I think you said, right? Yeah. What was the? Was it just because? What? What made you want to move to Chicago? Um, well, I had two friends that had moved there the year before that um, we had talked about starting a band. And uh, that was when, like, Touch and Go and Thrill Jockey were really, like, blowing up. And, you know, it was really influential. And it was, I grew up in St. Louis, so it was close to where I lived. So it didn't seem like such a big leap. I was going to go to school and I was either going to move to New York or move to Chicago. I had friends in both places, but I knew if I moved to Chicago, I would be able to play music. So I kind of decided to do that. And that's when 90 minutes started. Uh, yeah, not to, not to, I constantly pat Chicago on the back, but I mean, it just, <laughs> it's, I, it's creatively, it's, I think it's the best city to go. When people are like, should I go to LA, or New York? I'm always like, go to fucking Chicago. If you want to get your chops and get going, there's no better place. I still think that. I thought that, and after I moved here and found access to that world I had been looking for, I was knew I had made the right decision. But I would say that now to anyone, you don't have access to the same things anywhere here. If you're, you don't have the opportunities, the cross pollination of all these scenes, or like just the ability to actually live and focus on music because those things don't happen. Yeah, I think Chicago. I I. The, the the inner the cross pollination as you say is like I mean like people I've talked to from Chicago they, you know they play with everybody people will play with Vandermark like they, they'll play there it's just like and I that's like that's vibrant to me that's like inspiring just to even hear about yeah and that's why the music came out of here so good because there's no you don't have to be in the box you know like there's there's no container for what people are doing yeah, I think that's, I don't know. I, I think that's great. I wish more, because like I've lived in LA now for 20 years and there's so much like, 
you can't say an idea here without somebody being like, oh, so it's like blah, blah, blah. And it's like, fuck off. Like, fuck you. <laughs> like, like, that's my gut reaction. But, you, you know, you, you want a job, so you can't say that. <laughs> but it's like, that's so small-minded to me where they're like, oh, that's like the fucking... And I'm like, maybe not. Maybe that's yeah. just how you see it, and maybe we should, like, be patient, you fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I found that, like, in Chicago, people were... I don't know. More open. I, it's it's magical. God I think that's just like the Midwestern thing. It's like the ability to let some things like grow, take your time, don't rush into you know. Like, I mean, I say that based on the people I know in the Midwest. There's another side of the Midwest that is different than. <laughs> <laughs> but and you, when you arrived in Chicago, was that was the sort of that the, at the tail end of the because there was like a label feeding frenzy going on around then was that petered out at that time or was that still happening i think it was kind of done this was 95 so i feel like a lot of that stuff happened a couple years earlier and i mean i was drawn to chicago because of the independence which you know like i love touch and go i loved uh what thrill thrill jockey had only put out a few releases at that point and it was like Tortoise and, you know, I think Trans Am came out a year or so after I'd been here. But those records were like, I'd never heard anything like that before, you know? Yeah, that must have been, I don't know, was that, maybe it like on paper in my head, it's like, oh, that must have been cool because that was a transition out of sort of one scene into it or one era into another that you yeah. that you came in. Was that mm -hmm. noticeable in that moment? Um, not for me because I I was young, so I couldn't go to like Rainbow or whatever, you know, and see like the you know like the Liz Fair thing or like Urge Overkill or whatever. Like, I wasn't I didn't have like access to that thing that happened before. I was only seeing what was like coming up. So it was apparent, and like there was tons of weird shows like everywhere. Like I remember you know, going to, like, a warehouse and the band played in this, like, sewer and everyone just stood around the sewer and, like, looked down at the band playing with, you know, like, there's so many weird things. And they have amazing. <laughs> so my mind was shattered, like, instantly. And I just loved it. I mean, I was out every night trying to see shows. And Fireside was going and they had a show every night. I lived around the corner from Mount Jackson. It was like, there was always something to do and always seeing bands that, you know, I had loved, like, for years, like, finally seeing Lungfish play to, like, 20 people and it was, like, mind-blowing. Yeah, it was crazy. Wow, that is so... Was Fireside all ages? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I, I have... Oh, yeah. As a, as a music fan from Chicago, I'm embarrassed to say I never went inside there. It was wild. It was one of a kind. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I'm so embarrassed about it. I may have uh, deflected and made it seem like I've been there just when I was younger, so I didn't seem uncool. <laughs> <laughs> but I did see Fugazi play in a fucking roller rink, so I win. I saw that. That was one of my first shows. Here. Get the fuck out. Yeah. It was yeah. uh, At the, a rainbow roller rink. Yes. It's gone. It's now a gas station. Oh, I love I love progress. Yeah. yeah, I live up that way now. So like, it's funny. That was when that was the first couple. Was that ninety five or ninety six? I think it was ninety five. I couldn't. I it was. I know it was. Was it because I saw? Was that shellac? Shellac played. And was it makeup? Uh, makeup. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I also saw shellac, Fugazi, and Nation of Ulysses at one point. Oh shit. With Peg, Peg Boy. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I used to go see Vandermark play at uh, like a coffee shop around mm. then too for like five bucks before before the MacArthur Genius. Yeah. Before, and yeah, I used to go at the, the bottle. He would play Tuesdays and it was always like Jazz Tuesdays and it would be free or almost nothing to give him. I can't remember. If you, I don't think you had to pay. I think it was just like come and get some drinks and watch some jazz. 
Yeah, he's uh, he's mind blowing. Like it's he's just mind blowing. Yeah, deserves everything and more. In my opinion, he's true champion of art and people. Yeah, he's great at. I watched a, he some interviews he conducted like during the pandemic, which we thankfully still have. But it, yeah. just like his passion to listen to him talk to musicians is just incredible. Yeah, he's awesome. He's a really sweet guy. Uh, did so when you hit Chicago? Did you start feeling? Did you? How soon was it until you started doing Ninety Day Men? Was it pretty immediate? Yeah, we started the the summer before, um, and we the whole point was like, let's just write six songs and play a show, and then when we all get back up to Chicago, we'll find a practice space and figure out what we want to do. So we got up here that fall, September of '95. We did that. We wrote a set over that summer, played it, came up here fall of '95, and spent that whole fall just like finding a space, writing songs. Uh, we recorded a demo, and then by January or February of 96, we had a show at the Fireside. And uh, from there, we just, we met our first shows with our friends from, who became our very good friends. They were in this band called Muster King. And uh, we became friends with them and started doing shows and meeting more people. And set, we set up a tour that summer and did shows with them. And it, you know, really naturally just evolved into um, the band and, you know, it's becoming a part of like this younger crew that was playing music and trying to have things happen. I felt like, because I bought the first CD of, and I, I when it came out, I, I don't know how I heard it, but I just remember being blown away by it. And because it was, did you, did you have a sound in your head going into 90 Day Men or was that something that was discovered? Because I feel like with 90 Day Men and all your bands, there's it's distinct. You can't go like, oh, it's... Like, you've, you've always been very much your own thing, which is something that should be obviously commended. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I don't think there was, uh, like, a sound as much as there was a we don't want to do this, you know, not like, let's do this, but like, let's make sure it's not this or this or this. And then when you combine that with the, like, that kind of vision with like the technical limitations uh, that the three of us had, I think it just turned into this weird, like its own thing. And uh, I think that just in informed the way that we continue to like write and be a band. And it, um, just made an impression on me to like sort of embrace the like uh, mistakes and you know embrace uh, collaboration and just letting things happen and things take their time instead of forcing trying to force something into this box or this sound that maybe isn't natural or is not necessary you know for it, maybe I'm just relating this to myself who was an idiot in his 20s but <laughs> but that's incredibly mature for a young artist to take that approach I think because I yeah. to, because I feel like so many people at that age emulate and don't and to take that patience is pretty speaks a lot to who you are I think it was also it was also just the way it had to be like we were also really stubborn so we weren't willing to like not have any of our ideas entertained, which just led to us listen, learning how to listen to each other. And that was the hardest part of anything, I think, is just learning how to listen, you know, and reflect or adapt to that. And I don't know, like, we argued all the time, right? <laughs> Constantly. <laughs> but, it's, but that also led to, like, you know, that helps define like your vision or helps, you know, it weeds out the like compromise. Like I think a lot of people think collaboration is compromise, but that's not, I don't see it like that. And I've been lucky to play music with people who don't see it like that either. So. Yeah. Did you, I just, you know, I, I think when you're, and I'm not you, I just sort of a larger scale when people are in their twenties, there's like, it's hard not to get locked into ego and you know i just remember thinking i fucking knew everything <laughs> oh yeah and i knew 
shit about fuck. Yeah, I, I mean, I felt the same way. Like, I was positive that I knew something that everyone else didn't. And, you know, yeah. One day you just, you know, you wake up and you're like, I know, like, there's so much for me to learn. Like, you know, I kind of picked that up too. Like, once I finally started working at a record store, being like, just, you know, back to that discovery thing, like, people just playing music and you're like, what is this? Like, you know, like, oh, this is Can or whatever, you know? And you just like, I know that name. I know, like, I've seen that cover. I've never listened to this. And it's, you realize it's kind of a part of your DNA from somewhere else, you know, because it's like been picked up by the bands that you liked. And then they, that was always fascinating to me, like traveling back through the like steps of the music that had influenced you into what was influencing them. Yeah. That's kind of, you know, that's like a humbling in a weird way or just like that discovery is exciting and makes you realize like there's, you know, yeah, I might know everything about Touch and Go, but I don't know anything about how those bands got there, you know? And it's like, so that was always fascinating to me and like an exciting way to like continue to educate myself. Because you worked at Reckless, which is... I mean, that's like the fucking record shop of Chicago, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's awesome. There's a lot of great stores now, um, but I grew up going to Reckless and working there, so it's always I'm always going to have like an affinity for that spot. Yeah. Did uh, was there? I, I meant to look this up before we talked, and then I got distracted because I have kids. <laughs> Which I think you do. You have one. I have two. Two ages. Mm-hmm. Asher is 16 and uh, this is their practice space and uh, oh, cool. yeah, Vera is uh, 8 so, wow so you waited yeah we did too I have uh, 6 and, and almost 2 oh cool it's uh, I it's could... probably a weird time for you <laughs> the way <laughs> it's uh as a guy who it's hard to as you know it's like when your kids are there all the time to get anything creative done to f- finish a fucking thought <laughs> <It's> yeah. like, <laughs> you have to schedule time <laughs> yeah i was getting up at 4 a.m to uh because i'm like this is the only window of opportunity i'll have where it's everybody's right. quiet mm-hmm. uh but yeah was there other people who because I feel like a lot of bands have filtered through as as employees at Reckless. Was there anybody else there at the time? That um, so many people. Uh, Kip, who was in a band called Dinoga. Uh Henry Polk was in a band called Bells. Uh, there's so many. I can't even think right now. I'm, I'm just thinking of the store that I worked at. Steve Krakow was in Classic Crime with, as was Mark Lutz. Uh, yeah, tons. Which, tons. which which store were you at? I was at the Broadway location. Oh, yeah. I bet you I bought something from you. Isn't that crazy? Probably. Yeah. I lived uh, closest to there for a little while with my okay. cheating girlfriend, who probably slept with uh, guys you know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> she mm-hmm. had a... When I was at on stage at Second City, she was running around with band guys, so who knows? <laughs> oh. <laughs> a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Cupcakes is a band that comes to mind. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. I know them. Or I don't know them, but I know what you're talking about. <laughs> he, d- he didn't know. It's not his fault. Yeah. Because... Um, how did so 90 Day Meant to Disappear is how did that transition? Did you just... Um, so 90 Men went on to be a band for about a decade and we kind of reached this point where we really just wanted to like step back for a minute and take a break and of course during that time everyone started doing something else and you know coming back just became more difficult and uh during that time I was playing in this band called The Ponies oh yeah yeah and uh that was I'm sorry. Uh, that was great. It was super fun, and I learned so much being in that band. And we had a tons of amazing opportunities. It was really cool. 
And then that band kind of reached a similar point where it's like kind of needed to pause. And then uh, I was just writing songs that I thought could potentially be pony songs or maybe something. You know, I didn't even think I wasn't even thinking of starting another band. I was just thinking of I need to continue to like be productive while we're kind of figuring some stuff out. So I recorded some demos with my buddy Graham Gibson and I was just playing guitar and singing and he was like, can I play drums on this? I was like, yeah, of course. So he filled them out and it was three songs and we were like, this turned out great. And so he sort of was like, well, what if we asked, like, he was in this great band from Chicago called Boas. And he wanted to ask our mutual friend Jonathan to play guitar on the songs and, uh, so Jonathan did, and we did a practice that was just the three of us. And then we found our, we found Jonathan knew this guy, Damon, who had just moved to Chicago. Just Jonathan met him at the restaurant he works at. And uh, he came and played bass, and everything just clicked really quickly. And we wrote some songs and played a show. And then all of a sudden, people were really interested in our band. It happened really fast. And... Uh, yeah, then that went on for like 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it's just, I, I mean, maybe it's just me on the outside being a dope, but it's just always interesting to me because it's like, it's rare that somebody can be a part of, you're a part of four different bands that are distinctly different and prolific and great. And a lot of people don't pull that off. Thanks. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just like, my thing is kind of like, if you stop, it will go away, you know? And I think, especially as I get older with trying to play music or even like having people to play music with, it's like, it just gets hard. Like, obviously people have things in their lives that they have to focus on. And when you're young, being in a, being in a band can be that thing because your responsibilities are significantly different. But now everyone's got mortgages and kids and all this, and just life, you know? Like, you get older and you start thinking about things different. So I'm always like, if, if there's always something to motivate us, to look forward to, to, you know, be excited about, that can keep these things rolling. So when something is stopping or coming to an end, I just try to, like, use that momentum to, like, push into something else, you know? like disappears especially and facts has been the same way where it's like we just try to make like 30 minutes of music every year and try to release that and like most of the time that works or you know if it doesn't come out it's coming out or if we don't do this we have this other thing or we get asked to do this cool tour and or go to Europe you know it's like there's always something that we're working towards that keeps us motivated to keep working and that's how I've been able to do anything for anything musically for the last 25 years, you know, just like motivation or fear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fear. I mean, I kind of took a break from things for a couple, cause I, once you like, I don't know if you experienced this. Once I had my first kid, it fucks, fucked it. Like not just, it sounds negative. Like I'm like, Oh, my fucking kid. But like it, there was like an identity situation that happened yeah. with me. And I was like, what am I supposed to, cause there's so many outside voices that are like, be responsible, do this. So I took a corporate job. I did everything I was always against. <laughs> and I quickly felt myself creatively and intellectually wither. Yeah. I was, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was so lucky that when, my first kid, Asher, was born. That was when ponies were like just scaling up super fast. And like, you know, we, we, were, we signed a big record deal and we were on tour a lot, but there was always money coming in. That was right before like everything crashed. So money was coming in and things were going good. And it was easy for me to not justify, but like it was easy for me and my wife to be like, well, this is working right now this is going good there is money even though there is like a sacrifice of you not being around but we and we you know our rent was nothing and my wife was working in a job where she made good money at a restaurant and we were just like we just had to find out like we just had to balance the actual responsibility of like somebody being there all the time which we were able to do 
Uh, but if I wouldn't have been in that situation with ponies, it, it may have been really hard to, you know, go on tour and make a hundred bucks a night or whatever the situation was going to be. Even just spend a hundred bucks on the practice space every month, not knowing if we were ever going to get out of there. You know, that would have been a different scenario. So I, I was really fortunate in that at that time that things were going the way they were going. Yeah, I remember when the ponies also bought that CD when it first came out. Uh, was there first? Was the first album on In the Red, or am I crazy? First and second, and I joined right before the second one came out, and then uh, so I just walked into the situation that was already like going really well. So I I was fortunate for that. Yeah. Uh, who was the major label that came sniffing around? Uh, well, it was Matador. Oh yeah, I mean, so not a major, but. Like, a, a biggie that yeah we were all super excited and we were all really happy working with Larry on In the Red too but I think there was this feeling that to grow we needed to do something bigger and uh, you know those situations don't always work out the way you want to <laughs> Yeah, I used to, Larry was a private owner or secret owner of a restaurant that I used to work at in Eagle Rock. That's how I met a lot of... Oh, I probably met you there, maybe. Auntie um, M's? Yeah, you yeah. probably did. I, yeah, that was Larry's old old girlfriend, right? Yeah, yeah, I worked mm -hmm. there, and that's how I met a bunch of music. Like, that's how I got involved in the L.A. music scene, just by becoming friends. I mean, I was seeing shows, but then I was, like, suddenly working with all these yeah. dudes who were, like, you know, in... Brian Jonestown massacre. Oh right, yeah. Uh, yeah, that place was great. We ate there a couple times. Yeah, it's funny because I didn't know who Brian Jonestown's massacre was. They kind of just missed me, and I used to see—I can't think of his name—the singer guy Anton. everywhere. Anton, yeah, and I was just like, "Who the fuck is this lunatic?" Yeah. <laughs> and then one day I watched the documentary, and I was like, "Oh, it's that lunatic!" <laughs> and I was right; he's a lunatic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I've seen him be a lunatic. <laughs> yeah, a friend of mine took me to see them open for Guided by Voices, and he was like, they're probably going to have a fight, so get ready. Mm -hmm. And I was like, but they didn't. I was. It was like kind of almost it became the thing where people would see them thinking that something crazy was going to happen. I know, that was sort of like the... That was a bummer. It took away from the music, in my opinion. Like, when you create... When the reason people are showing up is because they want to see like the spectacle, it takes away from the fact that they wrote like tons of great songs that people, yeah. I mean, I think they're doing fine. I think they're, <laughs> you know, superseded that, but like, yeah, you know, there's lots of, I can think of a few bands like that where it's like people are just going to see the explosion. They're not there to like be a part of the music. That's got to be weighing on someone's psyche, too. If you're the guy, people are waiting. Yeah. If you got to be the, like, clown every night, then it's... <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> yeah, I have some friends who will remain nameless, but, like, they had... It was a stage persona, and yeah. it was like that overtook everything, and then they're like, yeah, I started thinking that's who I was, and... Of course, that, yeah. that, that never ends well. No, I know people like that. Yeah. No. Doesn't end well. It's great wins. Yeah. It. But good I'm glad you guys didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but you do like especially that year, like I mean Ponies put out that record and then we were on tour for like a year and by the end of it, whether you are a stage persona or not, you feel like you are getting up there and going through the motions. Like it's really hard to like to do that and to be able to pull from the same things that made you want to do it in the first place when it's just like, I don't want to sound unappreciative, but it's like, you know, it's hard, it's hard to get up there and be like that 200 days a year or how 300, whatever you end up doing. Like, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to find that inspiration when, you know, you've, feel like you've tapped that and you need you still have a month of shows yeah and a lot of folk start drinking you know to keep exactly. that but that just seems yeah. like uh, you know that's one thing when you're 24 <laughs> and still yeah, challenging yeah. i toured at 24 and i was like drinking like i was somebody important and cool totally. and it's, i mean yeah, you get bored and you want you want to kill that or you're not happy where you're at or what you're doing and you want to 
you know, make that go away, and then and you end up somewhere you weren't anticipating. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have to sort of read to have to find a way to sort of keep yourself invested, so to speak? Well, I had like. I was invested because I've never really wanted to do anything else. And I felt like I'd finally gotten to a point where I was, could do what I wanted. And also financially, I was at a point where I was, you know, I felt stable and secure and I had like gotten a place with my wife and we had a kid. And like, to me, it was really important to keep those things going and in check because that was how we were surviving. Um, when that stopped, I had to really think about like, do I, do I want to do this again? You know, like, do I want to start this whole thing and get into that situation? And it wasn't like an easy start for disappears in terms of like things started kind of with a bang and we had all these opportunities and then the industry kind of tanked overnight and all those opportunities went away because people got kind of freaked out. But at that point, I had already kind of decided that I was, like, invested in this. So we kind of built it up and uh, got ourselves in a really good situation with Cranky, and they let us work. And, like, they let us put out a record a year, and they let us, you know, they didn't ask anything from us. They just supported us. And that is what kept that band going, because we were able to take advantage of opportunities, and we were able to kind of do things our way and they let us do that and uh we got some lucky breaks in there like when steve from sonic youth played with us and that obviously you know made a lot of people pay attention to us and set us up to be able to continue being a band even after he wasn't involved um and then we just kind of tried to roll that momentum in the facts so it's been kind of just a series of like you know just keep moving forward, keep looking ahead and let things, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. You just have to be sure that you're doing the things that make you feel like you've done everything you can or that you're doing it your way or whatever is important to you. How did Steve Shelley get involved? Um, we had recorded a record that was um, going to come out on a label that, well, okay. So we played a show, and Jeremy, or, uh, sorry, our, we have a mutual friend named Jeremy Lemos, and he is a great friend of mine, and he worked for Sonic Youth. And um, Steve was in town doing a recording project with Jeremy, and Jeremy brought him to see Disappears play. And uh, Steve really liked it. So we kind of, Jeremy introduced us, and we sort of started this, like, uh, friendship just through email just chatting talking and uh, he um, yeah so then he asked us to do he was playing drums for Michael Rother from Noi and he invited us to play some shows with him and during that time our drummer had decided to move to Portland so we were like well, we had a record coming out our second record and we Asked Steve, we were like, let's just ask Steve. And when he says no, someone well, else. <laughs> so we asked Steve to play, and he said yes. And it was really just like we're like, we have this record coming out. We got a couple shows around Chicago, and then we're going to Europe for like two weeks. Would you want to come and do that with us? And he said yes. So he came and was practicing with us, and then from there we just naturally like we started writing some songs together and then we kept getting opportunities to do things and then steve was just like yeah like i don't have much to do right now like let's do it and then um so he played with us for a couple of years and it was awesome it was so fun and uh then he started to get really busy with like lee put out a solo record and thurston put out a solo record and he was trying to juggle all three things and him and i had a conversation we're like you know it's probably, you know, those things are, you've been building those relationships for years. You're obviously going to make way more money. Like you should take advantage of that. And we'll just figure out our own thing. And we'll circle back, you know, and we're still friends. Like I talked to Steve when we were in New York recently and it's great. I saw him last time he was here. Uh, it was a really cool friendship and like we got to do some amazing things together. It was it because I've worked with, 
or even just work or socialize when you summon because I know like Evil and Sonic Youth was a big influence yeah. and it's just I don't know or even guys I admire like I'm friends with Wayne Kramer and I can't even when I'm still hanging out with him after 10 years I'm like uh, like it's just always there <laughs> so, yeah yeah <laughs> him dancing yeah. around in the back of my head it's there. I mean yeah it's like still really exciting to me to know that I could call Steve and he would answer the phone or that, you know, <laughs> when he's in town, we're going to, we're going to eat lunch or something. Like, I love that. I'm always, always holding back from asking like crazy questions that I've thought about for years. Cause I don't want to be that guy. But, uh, yeah, I have a couple of things like he's that. So sweet. I could, I could sit him down and be like, okay, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to ask you 10 questions. And he'd be like, Oh, cool. Like do it. But I draw. Yeah, I have two friends like that, Wayne being one, and I'll hear other people tell me stories that Wayne told them, and Wayne never, like, I never get, I'm always like, fuck, I want those moments. Yeah. I did get to talk to him about the 68 Chicago convention a little bit, but that was, which is, yeah. And is, because how long ago was the Fax album that came out? It was last year, 2021? Yeah, it came out in May or June. May. May of uh, 21, yeah. And with the with the rate that you put things out, it, I would assume that pro- you probably have something recorded? <laughs> uh, well, we did actually record uh, some stuff yesterday um, that will be on our next record. I'm not sure if... We have a session booked in April that is like our the official recording of the album, but uh, we had a really good time. We kind of just got an opportunity from a friend to participate in his recording experiment. Uh, but it was at the studio we're going to record at, in the room we're going to record in, so there's a possibility we'll use those songs or we might just re-record them. But uh, yes, we are recording a record in a few months, and whether or not it comes out this year is completely dependent on if the... <laughs> record pressing out <laughs> of the industry uh, catches up with itself um yeah that's I, I mean right now it's like there's no nobody knows you know like we even are lucky enough to deal with a pressing plant that only does stuff from illinois and their even their turnaround time is still eight or nine months so i trying to cram it in this year might just be foolish in terms of like can we even plan anything around it you know like it might be better just to like try to release it this time next year instead of trying to shoehorn it into this year just so it's in this year and then we have to like we can't do anything you know right yeah that final because I'm uh, I I buy a lot of records I buy things because I want to support which I think is important and that's something I talk about all the time on here and I'm like so is there other other ways I mean I love having a record that's the best and that, like I say like it's that way my daughters know that it's not some magical speaker you yell at that plays music like they have something tangible yeah but I, are there other things that, that you guys sell that uh, I mean we sell like shirts and, and all that stuff. there's I don't know I'm not like I try to like, I like like exclusive things like some live thing or, you know, some cool, weird recording or a version of something, but I try not to get into like the coffee mug world or, <laughs> I like those things. I totally get it, but it's like, <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. I don't want, we've done some live streams that we put a lot of thought into that I think turned out cool. Uh, I think just going to shows is has always been like the biggest thing. Like if you, people are at your shows, that's money that's going directly to the band. That's helping out local venues and you know giving people job, creating jobs in like this way bigger way than people realize. Like people, you know, bands live off, some bands live off touring, some don't, but you know people that work at clubs, booking agents. Uh, there's a whole industry built around just someone standing on stage playing music. And I think people don't realize how much they're contributing to like their community when they support those people and places. 
That's a great point, and I'm surprised that no one's brought that up on here before. So I'm glad you did. Because oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm always trying to like It's my main Like people were like Oh you should do Patreon exclusive episodes I'm like People are trying to promote their music During a pandemic I can't be a fucking dick about it <laughs> it's like, yeah. So I can make I never, I never really judge anybody For doing those things But I just haven't found Anything like that That appeals to me Or makes me feel like It's the right thing to do Or That the band would be comfortable with you know it's like I don't know we just grew up in a different time with like independent music so it's like it, I just look at it a different way than I think maybe some someone younger or someone who's more tied into the internet would, would or something yeah I, I've been fascinated I've read a book recently called Sellout which was about the last oh, yeah. oh did you read that? no I haven't read it yet but I, I, I really want to I'm so so curious I, I'll read anything about music It's really interesting but Oddly I don't care about any of those Like not yeah. saying those bands suck I just right. it's not my cup of tea And I've never That's the thing. Yeah I'm not interested in really any Maybe a couple of those bands I can't remember everyone who's in it But I'm so curious about that their trajectory you know yeah it's it's fascinating and it is sort of the and i'm very fascinated by like chicago's sort of because chicago isn't really mentioned in it there's like one or two one Mm -hmm. but like to me that you know because like the jesus lizard was sort of the tail end of the chicago feeding frenzy and uh I don't know I'm just Because Chicago If I'm not mistaken Was considered like The next Seattle When that Idiocity I'm sure Yeah But I forgot where I was going With this (laughs) (laughs) Oh My point What is interesting to me Is like When did that Sort of Ethic Begin Because like Early punk the Sex Pistols, they were on three major labels. Oh, yeah. Same, like, Gang of Four, major label, like... Yeah, all of them. Joy Division was like, we'll make a record with Factory, then sign to a major... Like, I thought it. Yeah. It's just weird how that turned, and... and yeah, like, the independent thing was more, like, a necessity to get you to... Like, it means to an end or something. And yeah. For me, I mean, I don't know, like... It's, it sounds ridiculous, but, like... Fugazi, like I learned a lot about politics and like personal politics through Fugazi and they put out their own records and they, you know, promoted their own shows and they, they did everything the way that they wanted to. And while I wasn't going to go like whole hog into all that, like it did make a real impression on me about how you present yourself and what you like prioritize when, you know, making music and how it gets out there is important. And to me, I mean, I've worked with independent labels that were terrible and were probably just as bad as signing some major label contract. And I've worked with a lot of them, almost every other one that was like completely straight up, you know? But I've worked with, you know, those like predatory practices aren't, you know, exclusive to like the major world, you know? There's lots of people trying to make a buck off people who don't know better. I've certainly been that person multiple times. Yeah, the book goes into that. It's fast. And it's like, but it's like interesting because it's like, I don't blame anybody for going for a buck. I mean, I I think if you sacrifice your creativity, then there's a different thing. But it's like, if you can have control, but they would get like vans vandalized and just like. Yeah, for sure. And it's crazy to me. I mean, I always look at it as like if you if you have a job and you get offered a promotion and you say yes, are people gonna like be mad at you? Like your coworkers or like your family members or your friends? Like that's ridiculous to think that. Or like if if they were, you'd be like, why are you mad at me? I just got a promotion. Yeah, yeah. It's like you can't judge anyone for wanting money for who's been living in a van for 10 years you know like <laughs> I mean it, I'm not looking for anything that I, that I don't already have in the music world but if somebody offered me a ton of money like that might be hard to say no to just because I have real life expenses you know and like 
I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I, I just don't know. Like, and I would never judge anybody for making those decisions because, or for taking a Bank of America commercial or, you know, people used to get so mad about like licensing music and it's like, how else do you want me to live? Like, you're streaming my record, you know, like you're not coming to my show, but you want to judge me? Like, yeah, it's the streaming or the licensing is weird to me. Like, uh, because it's like, yeah, especially now where you can't make the money that you used to. It's like, well, what the fuck? Like, that buys you a year, maybe two years of of creative life where you don't have to. Because stress is a big factor in my personal creativity. If I'm like, oh, fuck, in that frame of mind, it's hard to focus. Yeah, totally. It's impossible. And it's also like. I don't know. I don't know anyone's situation, so I don't pretend to know it. You know, like, just, like, the whole indie ethic or indie world is, like, I don't know. It's different for everyone. Like, everyone comes to it in a different way, and everyone has different things that they take from it, and it's, like, not my place to judge anyone for the decisions they make, whether that's, like, Patreon or, you know, selling... Um, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting how personal music can be for people. That to the fact that where they would be, feel a need to be violent towards a, van, a band. Yeah. Totally. Like it's like crazy. It's like you don't have that right. Like it's crazy to me that some people think that way. Yeah. I mean, I guess when you make something and put it out into the world, people accept it or don't, and they. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Like, I can mean, mean something to someone that it doesn't mean to you, and they feel like they have ownership over that because of, I don't know. It's yeah. a weird, it's a weird, like, uh, I don't know if I can do that without thinking about it for a while. I can't talk I just, about it. Yeah. I just, I've always, anytime I'm a fan of somebody's, I root for them. Like, I'm like, yeah. It's funny because every one of your bands that I've discovered, I will hear the band first and then realize it's you. Like, I, uh, I discovered 90 Day Men. I had no idea there was a connection between Disappears and... And, and I only knew p- the Ponies until recently. I mean, I knew the band. I had no right. idea you were a part of it. Oh, yeah. And then, so... I, but then it's like I heard f- facts, and I was like, oh, this is great. And then I went... <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh, this is... Which, which I think is... I mean, it's a true statement to what you've... Thank you. Because it's like, I, I, I thought they were different bands at, at, when I initially heard them. I like that. Cool. That's an accomplishment, Elf. God damn it. <laughs> I think it. <laughs> uh, I, I thank you very much for your time. I've, I was really uh, excited to do this because, obviously, I like all your bands. Thanks. Yeah, me too. I've been looking forward to it. I was really excited when you asked me. very much for listening to conversations with the wire please become a patreon subscriber if you like also subscribe to the show on your itunes or what have you not and tell your friends about the show that would mean a lot to me as well as uh, go to the link tree in the show notes or the mattdwire.com or conversations with the wire at the instagram and you could learn more about the show buy merch and all those great things thank you very much for listening